all of our praise, all of our adoration, everything that we have belongs to Jesus, the one who was and is and is to come. Lord Jesus, we give you all that we have, whether that's our money, that's our time, that's our energy, that's our our hands up in worship. Uh, Lord, we give it all to you because it all belongs to you, all comes from you. You're deserving of it all. So Lord Jesus, we give it all because you paid it all. So we worship you, Lord, and we love you, King Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, welcome, guys. My name is James. You can take your seats. Um, Thanks for that, Pider. I heard that. Welcome to everyone online as well. Let us know where you're watching from. You guys are also part of the fam here. If um, Vaughn didn't make a mention of Marlene, I was going to but he covered it better than I could have. So that's, that's all good. I want to say, if this is your first time back at church this year, a warm welcome to you. My word, the church is absolutely packed. As I look out here, there's not a seat that's free. Um, and if this is your first time this year, I want to encourage you, why not go listen to last week's message from Lorelei? It was a brilliant, brilliant message. Uh, people in this room are just acknowledging and also vocalizing the fact that it was one of those that you can't miss, that you've got to go back and listen sometimes more than once. An excellent message about God calling us to maturity and letting that be something that we carry into 2024. Letting that being God, God's objective, let that be my objective for the year. Extremely good preach. And uh, today I've got the honor of opening up what we're going to be preaching about this year. And so this sermon's uh, series I've got to open up and the book that we're going to be going into, and I'm going to intro all of that stuff. So if you're new here and you haven't been around, you might not know this, but if you've been around the block, you will know that every year we take some time to park in a book of the Bible and we spend about half the year just preaching out of that book. And we think that's good to entrench ourselves in a part of God's Word, master that, become strong in that, and then we move on to another book of the Bible. And so we got Old Testament, New Testament over the last five years. We've done Exodus, we've done Ephesians, we've done the Minor Prophets, we've done Acts. Last year we did the Psalms, and this year is time again for the New Testament. And we are going to be taking on this year one of the accounts of the Gospel uh, at the front end of the New Testament. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They kick off the New Testament, and it's four accounts of Jesus' life. They are four portraits, really, that those gospel writers each have their own unique portrait. And so it's good for us to not bounce around, but park in one and try and see the way that they are trying to portray Jesus. And uh, we're going to go for the one that's the least loved, that gets the least attention, that's the most overlooked, and that's the gospel according to Mark. And so we're going to be hitting up that one. Um, how many of you know the slogan for Jamison Whiskey? Uh, you can shout it out. You won't get any prize money. You won't get judged. I drink Jamison Whiskey. So uh, someone shouted out from row two, and I was like, I'll buy him a Jamison. So uh, triple distilled, twice as smooth, right? Well, Mark's gospel is the opposite of Jamison. It's undistilled. If you want the, the gospel account that's just raw completely understilled, naked truth, just like straight up hits you like a truck. Mark's gospel is the one. And I think if you think of Matthew's gospel, 
There's a long backstory. We're going to start with a whole genealogy. He's trying to make an elaborate theological point. If you're going through Luke, oh, we've got to go backstory, Zechariah, Elizabeth, wada, wada, wada. The whole, whole long spiel that we have to go through. Then Jesus is born. Oh, yeah. But and with John's gospel, oh my goodness, we've got to go back to the beginning of, of the world. This is a big picture guy. This is like you ask a simple question and you get a well, let's start at the beginning, kind of an answer. He's that guy, John. Well, Mark's gospel is hard-hitting because in verse 8, Jesus, sorry, in verse 9, Jesus rocks up there and he's already 30 years old. Mark's not going to waste any time. This guy's going to get stuck right into, let's look at what Jesus said. Let's look at what Jesus did. In fact, there's not even much about what Jesus taught in the gospel of Mark. It's just, let's get the action bullet points. Let's get the headlines. This is the TikTok of no, that's a bad joke. God didn't strike me down for that. But uh, uh, it's the bulletin version of the gospel. It's the meat and the potatoes, the raw, important stuff. That's what Mark's gospel is all about. And that's where we're going to be. And I think for a few good reasons. Number one, because it's the hard-hitting one, and because there's a sense of urgency that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent, believe, and go and tell people about Jesus. I think that urgency is good for us in our day and our age and what God is doing. I think the urgency and the hard-hittingness is right for us to be digesting. Number two, because it's short, 16 chapters, we can do quite a good job of preaching through the whole gospel, not leaving out big chunks, and actually walking through it verse for verse, which I think is important for us. And number three, because 70% of Mark's gospel is repeated in Luke and in Matthew, if you've got a good foundation on Mark, you're going to be set up, and you're going to be strong in the gospels in general. So we're going to be hitting up Mark's gospel. I saw a yawn. You won't be yawning. This is going to be hard-hitting like a truck. Jesus is going to get you. Watch out. So that's what we're going to be doing. If you want to open up your Bible apps or your physical Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 1, you want to be putting your bookmark in that place because that's where we're going to be at. And how we do things here at City is even though we're in the same book, we're going to divide up those into many series. So we are kicking off in Mark chapter 1, and we've called this Prepare the Way. Prepare the Way. The way is Jesus. There's a, we actually need to prepare our hearts for this King. There's some preparation on the front end that we have to do. And this is the preparation for Jesus launching into his ministry in the book, in the gospel of Mark. So this is prepare the way. We're in verse 1. And I've got two headings for you. Number one, the announcement. That's literally a point just based off of one verse. Verse 1, 12 words. That's the announcement of the gospel. And the second heading is the preparation. So there's the good news in verse 1, and then verses 2 to 8, we're going to take a look at how we can prepare ourselves, prepare our hearts for the receiving of this good news. And so if you're taking notes, as you know, you get to heaven, you get more points, you get a bigger house. So just do take notes. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, and I want you guys to know as I read this, this is the primary purpose that Mark is setting out in his opening sentence. He's like, let me tell you what this whole book's about. This is a concise summary. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, most of us, when we read that, we go, okay, cool, next, and skip it like a Netflix intro. You can't wait for those things to finish. But in actual fact, these 12 words pack a serious punch. On Tuesday, when I sat down to prepare, I typed over 4,000 words just on verse 1, and then I was like, oh, Philip. 
Uh, and then I thought I better move on. And so I'm going to give you guys what, in my opinion, is a very shortened version and a light version of all the truth that I think is packed into there. We could be here for years and years and never get to the bottom of the depths of that truth. And so let's look at these words individually. The first thing is that he says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the beginning, he's not saying, hey, this is the beginning of my book. No one does that because it's apparent. This is the first verse of your, your book. You don't need to tell us that. What he is saying is this is the beginning of the great saving news of Jesus. This is the beginning of the greatest story ever told, the greatest victory ever won, the greatest deliverance that ever was. This is the beginning. He's trying to grab your attention like a journalist saying, clickbait, this is it. And then it says this is the beginning of the gospel. Right Now, we throw that word around here in our context in church, but in fact, the word means good news, joyful news. There's a sense of urgency when you hear it because it's a news bulletin. It refers to in the ancient day, how in the Roman Empire, for instance, at this time, if there was a great military victory that was won in Rome, then there would be an announcement that gets sent from Rome through all the surrounding cities, and a messenger would come. And they would say, Hear all, hear all inhabitants of the Roman Empire, your Lord Caesar has great and glorious news, for there has been a great victory that's been won over the Saxons over there in Europe, and your Lord Caesar remains the Lord of all the earth. And then all the people would cheer, and they would say, Hail Caesar, hail Caesar. And then the dispatcher, they must have been fit as all heck, would run to another city and do the same thing, probably panting a bit. And that's what his job was, was to just announce good news as a messenger. But what we have now in the intro of the Gospel of Mark is not a message that's dispatched from Rome, the central office of Rome, or for the Roman Empire. It's not for, even for the Jewish nation only. This is a message for every tribe and every nation and every tongue to know the joyful, good, glorious, never-endingly amazing news. And the announcement goes, hear all, hear all. Your Lord Jesus has amazing news that he has won a victory, the victory over sin and death and the grave. For he is risen. He is risen indeed. And your Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, reigns. That's the announcement. And so when I read verse 1, I get hyped up because I'm like, come on, this is the best news that ever was. There never was any good news like this news. It's the gospel. The, the good news comes, good news goes, but the gospel stands forever. Every single season of life, the world's going downhill, morals are degrading, economies are collapsing, wars are erupting, pride is going unchecked, everything's going downhill. But the one thing that never goes downhill, the gospel of Jesus Christ keeps growing from strength to strength because it's from Jesus Christ and Him alone. There is good news this year. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the announcement. That's what it means in gospel. We just one word in, and I'm already almost losing my voice. But we notice that this gospel is not just an event. You're my voice, bro. It's not just an event. It's attached to a person. Did you notice this word? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not just an event. It's attached to him. But we notice that Mark couldn't restrain himself. He called it the gospel of, then he uses three things. Jesus, that's a name. 
Christ, that's a title, and the Son of God, that's a title as well. Each three of these packs a punch, and each one is a case that, that Mark's about to make in his gospel. He's going to show you all these things. Let's unpack it. Number one, it's the gospel of Jesus, right? What is Jesus? Well, Jesus, it means our God saves. So when this title Jesus was given... It means that God is saying, the God in heaven is saying, this is the one through whom I will accomplish all my saving purposes. That's the name Jesus. So therefore, the gospel is a saving message because Jesus is a saving name. Romans 1 verse 16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, uh, the for, for, well, I'm not afraid of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes. So Jesus has the connotation of saving, and there is salvation in no one else. Acts 4 verse 12 uh, tells us that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus saves, only his, he saves, and there's not a drop of salvation that exists anywhere else. It's Jesus and him alone. It's the gospel of Jesus. For behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son. They shall call him Jesus, for he shall save their people from their sins. It's the gospel of Jesus because Jesus is the Savior. That's just the first thing that is listed there. The next thing that's listed is the beginning of the gospel. It's not just the gospel of Jesus. That's the intention of God to save. But that in and of itself is not going to do all that much to change the world. But what we also need is the gospel of Christ. Now, hate to break it to you, but Christ is not Jesus' surname. He is not born of Joseph and Mary Christ. Okay? Christ refers to the Messiah in the Old Testament, the Mashiach, the King who was promised from of old, the Deliverer that God would bring. Thank you so much. What a humble servant this man is. <laughs> hey? Thanks, Munya. Um, where are we at? <laughs> the Messiah? He's the Messiah. He's the King that was promised. In the Greek, the name Christ means the Anointed One. This is the anointed king who was promised. This is very important because it means that Jesus is anointed with power from on high, anointed with power to dethrone the devil and all of his schemes, to absolutely obliterate sin and all of its consequences. He is imbued with power because he is the anointed Christ to defeat Satan, devil, sin, and be risen from the grave because he can resist everything. He's all-powerful because he's the anointed one. He is the Christ. Therefore, not only is it the gospel that Jesus of Jesus where God intends to save, but it's the gospel of Christ that there is power in the gospel because the author of the gospel, the achiever of the gospel, the finisher of the gospel is Christ and Christ is the anointed king. And therefore the gospel is the power for salvation. No one is safe to just be completely unaffected by the gospel. God can lay down you flat prostate in repentance and raise you up new that you're not like turning over a new leaf but you're a cold new tree he can make someone new because it's the gospel of Christ it's imbued with power no one is more powerful than the gospel because the gospel is the gospel of Christ it's power his name is power because it's the gospel of Christ so we have the gospel of Jesus, that's his saving intention, but thank God, it's also the gospel of Christ, which means he's anointed with power. 
to accomplish that. This is not the anointing of the common prophet and the common priest and the common king of the Old Testament. This is the once and never to be repeated anointing of the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the one who would fulfill what we failed in every respect. He's anointed with power to do it. It's the gospel of Christ. We're just two words in now. I've got one more to go here. It's also the gospel of the Son of God. This one's so powerful. I actually only wrote a few lines on it. But it implies that not only is this Jesus related to God, but that he is the direct imprint and representation of God in heaven. The one whom no eye has seen nor ear has heard. That stands in unapproachable light. Jesus is directly in this exact same image as that God in heaven. He is the Son of God. This is His holy identity. Here on verse 1 of Mark, we already know, we're not talking about a dude who walked around in Nazareth. We are talking about God Himself who walked through the streets, touched the leper, made people healed, loved people, died on a cross. That was God Himself, the Son of God. We have Jesus, the saving intention of God. We have the Christ the powerful, anointed ability to save. And we have the Son of God, the identity. The saving work was not done by a person. It was done by God Himself. For how could we pay a cosmic price for cosmic sins? We needed the God of the cosmos to come do that. And so we have a packed case. And I want you guys, all I've given you is a taster because Mark is going to keep making points where it points back to us, oh, God's saving intention. He is Jesus. Ah, it's the saving power of Jesus. That's the Christ. Ah, he's actually identifying with the Father in heaven. He's the Son of God. And so this is kind of like the news bulletin. This is, you've got to now trace. You can go home with the Bible. You don't need to wait for preachers because that's boring. Go and read for yourself and see where the case is being made and draw it back to verse 1. And Mark's going to make that case through his gospel account. It's the announcement of the best news that the world has ever known. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But to receive this good news, we need to prepare our hearts. For as it stands, we can't waltz in there and claim it for our own. But there's a hard posture of humility and repentance that's required to receive it. And this brings us to heading number two, the preparation. Preparation. Now, we're going to read from um, Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 8. And... Uh, we're going to see this John the Baptist who played a role to prepare the way for Jesus. And it's going to tell us and be instructive for us as to how we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus as well. It says this, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Do you guys remember what Vaughan picked out? from that song, that I will, I will keep you before my face, set my eyes on your face. That's what we were singing. Well, here we have a messenger that's being sent before someone's face. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. See, John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, 
confessing their sins. Verse 6 says, Now John, he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. Okay, cool. Uh, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. He's speaking about Jesus. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is powerful. Uh, The 8am didn't get this message, but now you're going to get this story. Even the staff do not know it. No one knows, except for my wife, what's about to come. That when I was at Varsity uh, at UJ, I knew a guy who smoked his way through the Old Testament. Now, when I say he smoked his way through the Old Testament, he ran out of Rizla to roll his weed. And so he had a Bible. I don't know whose Bible this was, if it was like his Omar or something that wished the best for him. And he found that the pages of the Bible made really good Rizla to roll his weed. And he smoked. He started, obviously, in Genesis chapter 1 and smoked in the beginning with that uh, recreational activity that he was engulfed with. That was another kind of a garden that he was uh, experiencing. And, uh, he fu- and no, no lightning bolt came down, struck him down in judgment. And so he thought, well, we can carry on to chapter 2. And there he smoked his way through all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, not a problem came to him. He came all the way through to, the, to, through to God delivering his people out of Egypt with Moses, smoked through that, smoked through them in the wilderness for 40 years. All those commandments that God gave in, in Exodus, you shall do this, you shall do that. He smoked that up. Smoked his way through the prophets, major and minor, all of that stuff. Malachi came and went, and he had a guy living next door that was a Christian that thought this guy's really getting some fat judgment from God that he has no idea about. Maybe it's coming in the New Testament. (laughs) So he flipped over to Matthew, the genealogy that I spoke about earlier. He smoked smoked through the genealogy. And um, this was actually quite a while that that this happened over. He had like eight lava lamps in his room. I've been there. Uh, and so he smoked his way through Matthew's gospel as well. Absolutely no problems. This is a true story. He was in Opirif, the, um, the res next door to mine, which was Dromedaris. And uh, just random info. And uh, he got to, guess where? Mark chapter 1. And he read about, because every now and then he'd glance at like, oh, what is it that I'm smoking? Uh, yeah, read a few words. <laughs> and when he read... John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness, and he preached about repentance, and he said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' thongs from his sandals. And then he read the next line, verses 9, 10, and 11, which I didn't read now. And Jesus was baptized, and the Father and the voice in heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. When he read about the repentance of John, he was cut to the heart about his sin, it wasn't just the smoking of the Bible, (laughs) I think it's pretty bad personally, but his whole life falling short of a holy God, in every way inadequate and nothing to put before him that could impress this God. And when he read that line about being the son in whom I'm well pleased, he knew that that's the one thing that he wants in life. His dad never loved him. 
His father abandoned him, thought he was the worst. And all he wanted at that moment was a father in heaven to say, I'm pleased in you. And that day, he gave his life to Jesus, repenting, having smoked his way through the Bible. What a chub. I recovered. And that day, God's conviction of sin grabbed a hold of his heart. He said, I thought that the ground was going to swallow me whole. I felt so naked and ashamed. And he prayed. He brought that roommate over that's been tuning him for like a year now. And they prayed together. And this guy grew up to be, well, grew up, but like he grew up in faith to be quite a strong man of God. In fourth year, I led my Bible study there at Drom. And I was an ex-atheist, so mine was a fiery thing of its own. And he, re- he led a very chilled uh, Bible study at his, at his spot at Opi Riff as well. And this guy became, instead of a smoker of the Bible, a deep lover of God's Word. But I want you to understand that his conversion story of deep sorrow and repentance of his sin is so central to the message that we are preaching today. That's where the preparation for the good news begins. And so we're going to ask the text a few questions. I don't know how to transition from the smoking weed to the Bible nerd stuff, so... We're going to ask the text a few questions. We call it inductive Bible study. We're going to be detectives, and we're going to see what we can get out of there. The first thing is we're going to ask where is John the Baptist's ministry? Who was John the Baptist? How did he posture himself in in his ministry, and what was the ministry of John the Baptist? The first one is the where. Is there a where mentioned in our text? Yes, there is. It's in verse 3 that there's a voice crying out in the wilderness. The wilderness, that's the desert. I want you to log the fact that this gospel account doesn't begin in the holy city Jerusalem where all the religious figures are hanging out. It begins in a very unlikely spot. This begins in the desert, in a very unpopular place. That's where God often chooses to do his most amazing work is in the wilderness. That's where he met with the Israelites. That's where he met with Jacob. And God will meet with you in the wilderness this year. I don't know if you're in a wilderness time where everything is dry. There's not a morsel to eat where you're the lone voice of faith in your family. You're the lone voice of morality in your company and where everything is dry. But God especially meets with his people in the wilderness. He is the God of the wilderness because when every other tappers run dry, he likes to say, you see, I am, the sp- I am the river of life that never runs dry. When there's not a bite left to eat, he says, you see, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. And so the ministry, the greatest ministry of all time, because Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven that there is no man born under a woman who is greater than John the Baptist. The greatest ministry ever, and it starts out in a deserted place. That's who our God is, the God of the unlikely voice, the unlikely person, the unlikely place. He likes to show His glory. He likes to show His glory by using the most unlikely person, the most unlikely place, so people can say, you see, it was by God and God alone. Only He could have done this thing. That's what I love about God. There's a where. Now, what about the who? Well, we already know it's John the Baptist, but I want to tell you that this who, John the Baptist, he considered himself a mere messenger. In John's gospel, when he's pressed about who he is, he gives this answer. They asked him, bro, what are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. They said, are you a prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's like, I don't even have a unique message. I'm not the author of, tr of this truth. I'm not the editor of this truth. I'm just quoting Isaiah that this is what God has said in this book. He considered himself just a messenger. And just so that you know, every person who preaches the truth in the history of the world, in this church or outside of this church, we are mere messengers. We do not get divine revelation from God and then preach it to you. We find the divine revelation that God has already said, and then we deliver it to you because we are mere messengers. I'm not the author of the truth. I'm not even the editor of the truth. I'm just a waiter delivering the meal to you that God has already served up in the scriptures. That's the job of a messenger. If you, I love Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, just by the way, Pider. He was a great preacher. He said in his book on preaching, I never had an original thought. God forbid that I would. And he's speaking about the fact that we are not authors or editors of the God's truth. We're just delivery boys. That's who John considered himself, just a delivery guy for God's word. And do you, can I just challenge you as well? You are a messenger as much as I'm a messenger because all people that have received the message of the gospel are messengers of the gospel. And so you don't have to be refined, a great speaker, super clever. We've got a desert man who was wearing a, a, a leather thong thing and camel stuff and he like probably spoke really rough Hebrew and was not like a refined dude and he was called by Jesus the greatest person born under a woman and he preached the gospel faithfully a great ministry guess what you can do it as well you don't need a microphone you don't need a pulpit you don't need to be anything fancy you just need to know what God has said and what the announcement is and relay it as far as I can tell he didn't quote a lot of scriptures he had a couple in his bag he's like that's all I need that's all I need and that's what all you need as well you're a messenger I'm a messenger that's who we're dealing with here. So that's the who, but how is really important. How we play our role in God's kingdom, super, super important. And how John did it was with a humble posture. I don't know if you saw this in verse 7. He preached, saying something, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. In those days, the masters would ask their slaves to bend down and untie the, the thongs of their sandals because they were unwilling to stoop down because that's a slave's work. And the slave, this was considered their lowest point of service to their master because of its foot. There's some historical background I could go into with Hebrew. But in any ways, that is the lowest task that a slave could do. And since it's the lowest task, when John says, I am not even worthy to do that, his claim is, God is so mighty, I'm not worthy of even the lowest task that God could possibly give me. You know, this is a posture of humility that is so lacking in Christianity and the church today. Because today we live in an era where people seem to demand God's grace, expect God's blessing, expect God to answer their prayers exactly how it was prayed and exactly when the person demands it. When John's posture is the posture that the Bible calls us to, that God is worthy of all of me, but make no mistake, I am not worthy of God in any way, shape, or form, or even to perform the lowest task that he would give me. And I face that idea every time I get up to preach that I am completely and utterly unworthy to stand up here and speak about God. 
There's no way I can be counted as, oh, yeah, that's expected. It's not expected. That we get to participate in any way in God's plans is a scandal. There's a humble posture in this scripture that is so different to new year, new me. It's new year, less of me. New year, less of me. That's, he even said in John 30, verse 3, he must increase. He's speaking about Jesus. But I must decrease. Bless you. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the posture of John the Baptist. I'm praying that that's my posture this year. I don't have a long list of goals. But if I could ask you to just pray this prayer with me, is to say, Lord Jesus, this year, would you do this? That in my estimation, in my mind, in my heart, that you would increase, but that I would decrease. That's how he did it. But what was his message? Well, let's look at the, the scriptures. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is a loud voice. This is a voice to be reckoned with. This is not the kind of voice that you can pass over. He is shouting in the wilderness, and he is appearing, baptizing in the wilderness. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. What was his message? His message was straight up, God is coming. We must repent. We must turn from our sin and come to him. That that was his message. Not one person walked away from John the Baptist's messages and said, yeah, he's a really inspiring speaker. Not one person said, oh, I'm so intrigued by the sources that he used and what an interesting guy. But rather, what people would either say is, I absolutely hate John the Baptist because he's just a fire and brimstone guy. Or people were cut to the heart and they came before God on their knees. Those were the only two reactions to John the Baptist and we know that he died as well. What we have here is a message of repentance. What is a message of repentance? It simply means that in light of the holy, holy, holy God in heaven, that we know that we've been found wanting in his scales, that we don't add up, that we've missed the mark, that we cannot possibly meet his standard of holiness, and that as a result, I feel wretchedly unclean and wretchedly inadequate to come before him. And what I'm doing is I'm repenting, meaning I'm dropping anchor, turning 180 degrees from my life of sin, and I'm running to Jesus saying, Jesus, I'm like a dirty dishcloth. I'm like a dirty dish and I, I don't have anything to clean myself. I need you. I need your blood. Lord, I can't stand the burden of my sin. I wonder, have you been in that place where my mate from Opirif was a while back when he felt like the ground was going to swallow him whole because he felt naked in front of a holy God? I wonder, have you had that moment where you feel the sorrow that I cannot come before God like this? I'm ashamed. If you haven't had that moment, you're not ready for the gospel of grace because Jesus did not come to improve your life. Jesus came so that you would be saved from your sins. And if you don't think you have a sin problem, you don't need a Jesus solution. If you're at peace with your sin, you will never have peace with God. It's people that look at their sin and say, I cannot stand it. I need a Savior that are ready for Jesus. And when that person comes to Jesus, Jesus is so infinitely faithful. He's more willing to forgive than we are to repent. And so he washes us white as snow. But we must preach a message of repentance in the church today. And we must not neglect it because in that there's offense. But this is the power of God unto salvation. 
situation. Some will be offended. Others will be saved. But one thing we can't do is edit that gospel message and think this is too harsh for people. Maybe some people will be offended. And then what we're going to do is we're just going to like put some chewing gum, bubble gums like preaching in there and think that we can have eternal results with motivational speeches. But what we need is John the Baptist who stand up there and don't pretend to be clever and they just say, this is what the gospel has said. And so repent and believe in Jesus. That's what we need. And I'm, I'm not worthy to be compared to John the Baptist, but I pray one day when I'm gone and they at a memorial and they saying stuff about me, they might say, James was a total idiot in many respects. He messed it up all over the show, but his ministry was defined by he just preached the word of God and didn't add any fluff to it. I want that to be a hallmark of how I am in ministry until the end, and I want that to be the hallmark of the true church. That's where we get true salvation. There's no true salvation without true repentance. We need repentance or there's no gospel. And so I don't know where you're at today, and I came, didn't come in here to preach a message that would be popular. But I just came in here saying, this year, I really want my posture to be better in front of God. I actually have posture problems in the physical. But I have a humongous posture problem in the spiritual. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And this year, I want it to be more about Jesus, less about me. And so I'm coming before you, and I'm preaching a message to myself which is I need to repent. I need to return. I need to turn to God. I've gone off notes a long time ago, so the band can join me on stage. Whatever their cue was, I totally did not give them their cue. So the cue is, you guys must come up and join me. Uh, and what I'm basically saying is, guys, I'm preaching to myself, but I'm not wanting to put any fluff on because I know you need the same thing that I need, which is we need to turn to the living God. And if we have made anything else our source of joy of late instead of God, if we have found comfort primarily in anything or anyone else other than God, and if we've lavished our time and devotion on anything or anyone else other than God, we need to come back to God. We need to turn and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me. And so right now, we're going to go into a time to respond. I don't want you guys to stand up. I want you just to stay seated. Some of you might feel comfortable just bowing your heads in prayer. Some of you might even feel led by the Spirit to bow, to get on your knees. Some of you might want to cup your hands or whatever it is that's genuine for you to come before a holy God right now. Dunks and the guys are going to sing over us a song. And I want us to just do some business with God to the effect of Jesus, I've been far from you or I haven't done right in your eyes. I'm asking you to forgive me. Would you increase and I decrease? And we're gonna spend some time in repentance and then I'm gonna come back up and we're gonna be filled with the grace and the mercy of God through taking communion. But it's inappropriate to run to grace before we've come through the door of repentance. And so we're gonna do some business with God. You guys are gonna pray to God. I'm also gonna pray to God and I'll be back.